Mrs. Patchwoods. Across intersections and oceans, we hope to offer you a collection of stories about emerging and established leaders working to make change in their communities. My name is Jane, and today I want to share something slightly different with you. Today I don't have a guest, but would like instead to share with you an interview I did several weeks ago with an amazing individual named Patsy George. Patsy originally agreed to sit down with me over Zoom for an interview about her life story as a part of the Pacific Canada Heritage Centre Museum of Migration's virtual storytelling project entitled From Far and Wide. We spoke for several hours over the course of two days, which resulted in a huge amount of recordings, not all of which could be used for the PCHC project, which incidentally, if you were interested in, can be found at pchc-mom.org, and we will link it in the episode description as well. The objective of that project is to collect short oral histories of migration from around the world to Pacific Canada, and it highlights some really interesting and compelling family histories. I am thankful to PCHC for allowing me to share some of the unused parts of Patsy's interview with you today on this podcast, and to Patsy as well for giving her permission. Patsy George has spent most of her life as a social worker in Vancouver, but she is far more than just a social worker. At various times throughout her career, Patsy has represented Canada to the United Nations, was Director of Multiculturalism BC and BC's Immigrant Settlement Services. She was President of Vancouver's United Nations Branch, Vice President of the National Organization of Immigrant and Visible Minority Women, helped found the Stephen Lewis Foundation, Vancouver Society of Immigrant Women and Pacific Immigrant Resources Society, was an honorary witness to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and served on the Federal Refugee Appeal Board. Patsy has received honorary doctorates from UBC and the University of the Fraser Valley, as well as the Order of British Columbia, the Order of Canada, and several Queen's Jubilee medals, among many other awards for her community work. We begin at the beginning of Patsy's story in 1940 in a southern province of India. I grew up in, in Kerala, the southern tip of India on the west coast. And I was actually born during the middle of the Second World War in 1940. And that meant that we were British as subjects. You know, uh, uh, India was uh, ruled by Great Britain. And uh, so the Indian people were the soldiers who were participating in the Second World War. But there was a, a big movement um, in India to get independence from uh, Britain. And they had promised that uh, it will happen soon after the, after the war, but uh, it took a lot of effort. And it so happened that um, uh, the independence came in age in, in 1947, which means I was seven years old when India became independent. Both mm -hmm. my parents, my father and mother, as well as other relatives were all very active in the independence movement. And they were um, uh, 
participating in various political parties as well as in the in the social movements of the time you know and and uh, so i grew up as a teenager as a youngster and as a teenager uh hearing issues of freedom independence peace um rights of, of individuals labor uh, rights all of those sort of what we would today consider issues that interest all of us and so i think i was very fortunate to be um not only in this particular family but also at a time when there was a lot of activities that are going on and so i was very much stimulated by what was happening around me and it so happens that my father followed marxist ideology um uh, many indians were members of the communist party but they didn't agree with the socialist model from russia so they they really believed in a democratically elected communist party mm-hmm. that came into being in kerala the state of kerala the first place anywhere in the world democratically elected communist party in 1956 so i was 16 years old at that time so you can imagine uh growing up in such a uh you know atmosphere and and the two important things that they felt they must do is the land reform because the land was owned by just a handful of people and the land reform and education free education uh the indian history where men had the advantage over women girls were not encouraged to go to school whereas in kerala they were the three kingdoms that joined together to become the state of kerala when india became independent the 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 maharajas who owned those kingdoms or who were the kings at that time they were of historically matriarchal ideologies and so women meant a lot their you know they inherited everything through their mother and of course that particular family then continued to to uh, own properties through their sisters and daughters and 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 so women were important so but when the europeans came to india the dutch the portuguese and the and the british they decided that patriarchy was the better way and so we we had to change our laws so our laws were changed even though informally many families continued to to inherit their family their properties through through the mother anyway so there is quite a lot of history uh, that was there and so i grew up in a period where all of this was very important and and um, and and so what happens that because my father was a marxist and my mother was a, a social democrat um, uh, the indian congress party the party of of, of uh, gandhi and and, uh, and nehru and and all of those people there was always discussion and debate in mm-hmm. our household you know in relation to uh, to what's happening and who should we trust and you know and and so our dining room discussions were always politics and of course <laughs> there were six of us uh, children uh, i'm the eldest in the family five girls and a son and um, and also it so happens that both my father and mother they were also very active in the catholic church and again the catholic church was um, very very promising in those days because they really emphasized the social teachings of the church which was 
really consistent with the liberation theology of, of, of um, and, and so that meant that, um, you know, we were quite um, educated in, 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 um, in um, uh, arguing our case and, and, uh, and believing in the rights of, of individuals uh, and, the, and the democratic ways of doing things. And, and uh, now that is not to say there weren't issues, you know, poverty and all of those things were serious issues uh, in those days as well. But intellectually, we were quite prepared to, to fight for the rights of, of people. And so I was very fortunate to have been not only um, growing up in this period in, in southern part of India, but also having had parents who really believed in, in rights of women and girls and, and the importance of education. And um, so, um, so that's a little bit of, of, of the historical background of where I come from. In 1960, at the age of 20, Patsy left India and came to the United States to pursue her education. And perhaps not surprisingly, this was with the full support of her parents, who believed so much in the importance of education and reading for their daughter. So I took a 28-day trip from Kochi, uh, the city where I grew up, uh, via the Suez Canal, the Mediterranean, the Atlantic Ocean, and arrived in New York City in December of 1960 in the middle of a snowstorm without boots. <laughs> oh no, you it's something freezing. It's, it's something I'll remember. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I had no choice but to go to Macy's. Somebody said to go to Macy's. And I went to buy a pair of shoes, I mean, pair of boots. And I looked around, there was a, a friend of the family who had met me in New York, who took me to the, the store. And, um, and I went to the store and I'm looking around and this very nice woman uh, wearing a black dress and a pearls came to me and said, can I help you? And I said, yes, I need a pair of boots. And so she, so politely and so nicely said to me, I'm going to take you to the right place. This is for men. Women's shoes are somewhere else. I didn't know the difference between men and women's boots. I've never worn boots before. <laughs> so I do remember all of those very much so. And you know, many years later, uh, probably eight or nine years later, I went back looking for this woman to say thank you to her because she didn't make me feel like, you know, that I came from the, you know, from the country, you know, how we use that expression to say that not very civilized kind of stuff, which is a terrible thing to say. But anyway, I really felt like, oh, that's wonderful. She's going to help me choose right color and the right size and all of those sort of stuff. So I, I, I wanted to go and say thank you to her, but she was no longer there. Patsy only stayed in the United States for a year, during which time she attended a Catholic all-girls school. Her roommate was the only other woman of color. I want you to know that the person who saved me those years was Wangari Matai. Uh, Wangari was also from 
Kenya, a student who had arrived in the US as a person with a scholarship as well. And, um, and because now I know why we were chosen to be roommates, because we were the only two of color, you know, and all the other girls were white. And, and uh, this was a girls college that we were at anyway. But I am so thankful, you know, to the powers above that uh, I was introduced to Wangari because Wangari Matai, as some of you may know, she is the first woman from Africa to get Nobel Peace Prize. She started a movement to plant trees with other women. But the whole notion was to organize women. And she succeeded, you know, and, and um, not only environmentally, but also bringing all the women together so that they're able to address their issues. So that happened later on, but we were classmates. And so she would sometimes advise me about uh, what's the best approach to take. For example, you know, you are not as foreign students, we are not expected to be critical of American government or CIA or any of those sort of stuff. You know, there was no freedom to express you know, it, it was, um, I found um, until, um, you know, the real struggle for the Vietnam War against the Vietnam War happened, which was later on in the 60s, there wasn't very much of political activism among the certain group. Nancy's final decision to leave the United States came after experiencing a racist incident firsthand. I was at a movie theater with three other students from the university, from the college. And while we were sitting, after we bought the tickets, while we were sitting, waiting for the movie to start, somebody came and said that I couldn't sit with them because of my color. And what happened was I had to leave and stay somewhere else. But what bothered me more was the fact that my fellow students couldn't see how wrong that was and didn't, didn't feel what I felt, the humiliation and, and the kind of, of um, you know, feeling that somehow you're not a human being. You can't sit with them. Somehow you're going to ruin them. You're going to pollute them. After this experience, Patsy was disheartened and on the verge of returning to India when she met with the dean of her college, who had gone to school in Canada, in Windsor, Ontario. She understood that I was in great pain and I wanted to go back home because I just didn't think I could you know, survive the American experience. And she talked me into trying Canada. She said, why don't you give Canada a try and see what happens? And so I'm so lucky that she talked to me into it. I'm telling you, you know, I'm so proud to be a Canadian, and I'm telling you what a difference it made in my life. When I arrived in Canada in the early 60s, 60, 61, you know, the, the women's movement was very active. Came at first, and somebody that you might know who started um, Voice of Women and, and uh, Against War 
four Ps and the rights of women. She was just getting all active in those days. And I'm the first year, you know, in, in Windsor, and she's just in Toronto. And it was wonderful to get acquainted with people like her and to, to sort of feel, oh, my God, this is something different, you know. And, of course, it took another four or five years before the university students in Canada became politically active. Simon Fraser University, actually, here in Vancouver, started all of that activism. But in Windsor, what I found was people were interested in me because I was the first student from India they ever had. And here I am, exotic looking because I'm wearing a sari, you know, and I've just come from this first democratically elected communist state. So the United Church of Canada was interested in me going around and talking to people about how it was like for me as a person from the Catholic Church background, having to cope with issues that the Communist Party may, may raise around one's faith. You know, and, and um, there was no there was no problem for me, but they were interested in issues such as that, you know, and and um, and I also got involved with the student the political. They, they had clubs like each political party, liberals, the NDP had political parties at the university campus. And so I became involved with them as well. Patsy completed her bachelor's degree in Windsor. And while there, she began to turn away from the ambition of becoming a doctor, and instead began to pursue social work. She would eventually complete a master's in social work in Ottawa, and then return to work in Windsor. What happened in Windsor, um, after my graduation and I came to Windsor, I worked for family services in, in, in Windsor, but they loaned me to the United Way. And, and the United Way wanted me to do some work in the most desperate neighborhood, Drulad Road in Windsor, where there was a lot of young kids who were thrown out of schools for a variety of reasons. And this was a very poor community. The fathers were alcoholics and, and, and mothers experienced all kinds of violence. And, and, um, and, and they just didn't know, you know. And, and so I was sent there to find out, do a little research to see what needs to be done. And so I interviewed these young people. I interviewed the, the leaders of the church community and, and um, the doctors and a whole bunch of other people and came up with a, the, a plan to have more social recreation programs for these young people because they really didn't feel that the schools really met their needs, you know? And, and then I also, I also got the mothers together as, as a group, and because I was interested in group work as well, not just individual counseling. And out of that experience, we were able to go to Michigan, where they had started what's called a community schools. And so I took these women over to Michigan, and we talked with everybody there and discovered what that was all about. And so we came back and talked to the schools in, in Windsor, that particular school in that neighborhood to see whether they might open their doors after the three o'clock, 3.30. So there could be, you know, they can use the space because there was no recreation centers or, or social centers for these people to get together or the kids to play or nothing. Well, so I am proud to say I am one of the founders of the community school movement in Canada. 
And I was only two years out of university when I was able to do it. That taught me a lesson, community organizing, the way you go about organizing people because they know what their needs are. They know what the solutions are. After Windsor, Patsy moved to Nova Scotia, where she spent five years working in rural communities. Eventually, she ended up in Vancouver, not entirely by accident. While I was in Nova Scotia, I was also active with my professional association. And uh, so Nova Scotia Association of Social Workers, they decided to uh, nominate me to represent them at the national level. So I became a member of the board of the Canadian Association of Social Workers. And I met a BC representative, Jim Karpov, who was also a social worker, representing BC Associated Social Workers, who went on to become a member of parliament uh, for the NDP from Surrey. Anyway, um, but it so happened there was a conference of social workers here in, in Vancouver. So all of us from Canadian Association showed up. And guess who was the main speaker? Rosemary Brown. I mean, imagine that, eh? Imagine that. I mean, don't you think I'm lucky? You know, really and truly. (laughs) And so, but also when I arrived here, but before that, I arrived in in Vancouver on holiday after my graduation from a master's degree. There were three of us who drove across. And, you know, I arrived here in an August of 66. And I want you to know, as soon as I got here, I felt so much at home. I really felt, my God, you know, if I really believed in reincarnation, I would say to you, well, I bet you anything I was born here. And, you know, this is my second coming. I mean, I'm, I am back in Vancouver. It's the mountains and the ocean, the, the two together. You know, even though in Nova Scotia we had hills and, and the ocean, it was not the same. Here, it was just unbelievable. In Vancouver, Patsy embarked on a career as a social worker that was full of energy and accomplishments. However, despite working for the government, Patsy was able throughout her career to walk a fine line between being a government employee and an activist. Even as a public servant working government, I was able to continue to do my volunteer work because after five o'clock, they can't tell me what I'm doing. I'm a citizen, right? You know, I'm a very strong unionist, you see. So I was able to be on the board of First United Church, um, you know, Housing Society. I was able to start the, the Immigrant Visible Minority Women of Canada, along with other women. I was able to, to be a founding um, member of um, uh, Pacific Immigrant Resources, which is, again, supporting immigrant women with preschool children and a whole bunch of organizations that I worked with. I served on the board of the United Way. I served on the board of the library, public library, and and a whole bunch of stuff I was able to do. But if I needed to take time off, say for example, there was a protest rally and it was four o'clock in the afternoon. I'm still at work, right? But if I felt I need to be there or I've been you know, part of a group that have been doing this, what I would do is to write a note to my superiors to say, I'm taking half an hour off, work without pay or my vacation time or whatever. So there is a record in my, <laughs> and so my, my bosses knew what I was doing. I would never have done anything 
that would really work against the vow I took to serve, you know, as a public servant. Okay. But the rest of the stuff I did is my personal right as a citizen. And as long as I did it the right way, there's no way they can come. Now, I mind you, there were times that I've been really under pressure because some people in Victoria didn't believe that I was actually doing it the right way. They felt that, that I was sharing information with people outside and, and working against the government and, and you know, on and on and on. But they were not able to prove any of it because I never did any of those. You see, when I did it, I, I did it the right way. And so this is what I really and truly believe, you know, that even as a public servant or someone working in government or any employer, if you are really believe that some changes needs to happen within our own structures, there are opportunities. There are staff meetings. There are different ways in which you bring it, but you don't give it up, you see. Just because it didn't work the first time around, you know, you can't bring it up again in another month or so. Because what happens is people have to get used to this, this new way of thinking. So what you're really trying to do is to give them some time to change, you know, and, and use any opportunity you have in order to keep that going. But you have to have techniques that will work. For example, I always tell my, my colleagues, you know, just tell them I'm doing a pilot project. What do you think of this? You know, pilot project is not as, as um, you know, frightening for your boss, you see. And so, okay, she wants to try something new and, and we'll go along with it. And, and once they see the good results, then they believe, oh yeah, this could become part of the, you know, part of our, our policy. You see, so you try different ways to change the system. You know, it's a structural change you're trying to do, and and policy changes that needs to happen. And and uh, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> that's part of being a social worker as well. You know, it really helps to be a social worker to do some of these things. One of the examples I can give you is uh, there, there were, we had a number of homeless people in the downtown east side in those days as well. So one of my former clients who I used to have tea with, tried to learn about what's going on, and, um, and because he was trying to organize the homeless people and trying to, to form uh, what you call a, I mean, they pick up these uh, bottles and various things and you take it to uh, what is what's that place called uh, re uh recycling center recycling recycling yeah. recycling center okay but in order to encourage those people to come together as a group to start this particular organization he didn't have any money you know and the reason he needed money is because if he needed to get 20 of those people to come for half a day or whole day to talk about how they will go about it and all of those sort of stuff, they're saying, no, 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 we are missing our work because we get, you know, $10, $15 every day by picking up these stuff. And so, so what I thought, it will be wonderful if a government, we, the government, could give $1,000 for this meeting. So he's able to give $10 or $15 to each of those people and, and also... They can bring in some pizza or something for lunch. And so they can have a meeting, you know, 
Well, I tell you, I was told that I was organizing outside. I shouldn't be doing this. You know, my colleagues thought so. My colleagues thought that this is, you know, how can we justify giving money to, you know, these are all people who are already on welfare and, and, uh, and on and on and on. I tell you, I was very upset. And I tell you, the way I was able to convince them is because, you know, it's interesting. We just paid $2,000 to bring somebody from Toronto to give a 40-minute talk to all our staff about, you know, whatever. But you had no qualms about paying $2,000 to somebody like that. But you have qualms about giving $1,000 to the people to learn about how they're going to improve their own life situation? Well, my boss heard of that argument and he said, I think you have a point. Let's try it. Do you know that's how the recycling depot started in Vancouver, downtown Eastside? And once that had that meeting, they were able to go to Van City Credit Union, the, the foundation, and the United Way. They gave them money to start it. But the thing is, you know, we have to think outside our these boxes that we are in, right? You know, and, and that's the kind of stuff that, but some of those folks, my my colleagues, my fellow, fellow team members, now they were they were all management staff, you know. They didn't really think highly of me in those days. You know, they sort of thought that I was becoming an advocate and not necessarily a service person. Somehow someone who served cannot be an advocate at the same time, really. I often talk about this. There is a difference between uh, real participation and, and consultation. You know, I can consult you on something and you can sort of tell me what you think. But I go away making the decision. That's a consultation process. But a real participation to me is more than that. That you are also not only telling me what your needs are, what the issues are, but you're also part of the solution. And without that sort of an approach, you know, like when in, in a neighborhood, you know, where you, if you believe that uh, they know what they need and they're willing to, to, to find um, the kind of solutions that, would, that they need, your role is to bring resources from government or from wherever else, but not to take care or not take charge of making it happen. If it happens in the other way, where the people are doing it themselves, and it will go on, for generations and if there is to be more changes because you're only there for a few years as a worker i mean you know people shouldn't have to depend on those of us who are professionals you know one very evident aspect of patsy's work is that she's always been very concerned with women's rights in Windsor, she had worked to bring groups of mothers together, and this continued in her work in Vancouver, especially organizing women among refugee and immigrant communities. It's obvious that if we're talking about social justice and peace in our communities, 
we have to deal with equality issues that affect women and protect the rights of women and respect. So it becomes natural. When you educate a girl, a woman, you're educating the family, you're educating the community. And it's so important. I mean, I can go on talk about this for hours, but I really do think the facts are there for us to focus on the rights of women. And without it, there will be no peace because the violence against women, not only in places of where there are conflicts, you know, where the UN is involved and, and you know, authoritarian governments are, are, are uh, uh, really uh, harming people, but also in our own communities. We know what has happened to the First Nations people in this country. We know what's happening today. Patsy has also been friends with many remarkable women leaders in Canada, including Rosemary Brown, the first Black Canadian woman to be elected to the public legislature, and Margaret Mitchell, an MP who famously lectured the House of Commons after being laughed at for demanding action against domestic violence. Well, you know, I'm very fortunate to have had uh, a profession of social work where there are many women who have become leaders, national leaders, who happen to have the same profession as I do, whether it is Rosemary Brown, Audrey McLaughlin, Alexa McDonough, Margaret Mitchell, all of those people have had social work as their, their professional background. So it was easy for me as a young professional person to get acquainted with these people. In fact, Margaret Mitchell was my superior, my, my supervisor when I first came to, to Vancouver working in Strascona. She hired me actually. And Rosemary, I knew her from years before through my work with the Canadian Association of Social Workers. And, and, uh, and of course, uh, Alexa McDonough, who was also a, a leader, a, a NDP leader in Canada, she's from Nova Scotia. And we, both of us uh, served on the board of the Nova Scotia Association of Social Workers together, you know? And of course, Audrey McLaughlin, who is uh, who was also the first woman leader in all of Canada for a federal party, you know? Another social worker, very active with the human rights organizations and, and, uh, and, and mental health organizations in, in Ontario before she went into politics. And, and so I think part of it is, is our, our um, code of ethics, the professional code of ethics, and our ability to, to relate to the pain and the suffering that families and girls and women experience due to violence and uh, against them. And also, you know, real lack of services. It was Rosemary Brown who brought in, you know, uh, she was able to pressure the government to, to have um, many services for women and, and in, in, in BC. And of course, Margaret Mitchell, when she spoke in the House of Commons, talking about the violence against women by their husbands. The parliamentarians laughed at her. And, and they, I guess they felt uncomfortable listening to uh, some of it, including the prime minister who had the reputation of being all that nice to his own wife, you know? And, and, um, and Margaret said, this is no laughing matter, Mr. Speaker. And do you know the women of Canada picked that up as their slogan? 
and began to, to really organize to get better services, change in policy. And so those of us who have had these women as our leaders, it was very easy for us to follow them because uh, they spoke to those issues that we knew was happening to some of our clientele, some of our family members, some of our neighbors. And, and so, um, and in my case, because I'm, I am open to uh, listening to other people and joining groups of people in order to make that kind of social change, it was uh, easier for me, I think, than for many others to get acquainted with some of these uh, community leaders. And, and also, I guess they saw in me some strength and, and uh, interest in being an activist. There is a story that I tell about Rosemary Brown when she and I had tea together and it would be at her home. She always had, always, always had cucumber sandwiches along with the tea. This is a very English custom. We both coming from the colonies and here we are drinking tea with cucumber sandwiches and I used to tease Rosemary about, you know, how we cannot get rid of this colonial way of, of doing things. And so, but, you know, when she passed away um, and, and 2003, a group of us decided that we will honor her by establishing Rosemary Brown Award for Women. And uh, we have been doing that since 2004. That's number of years now. And for the first 10 years, we used to have a tea party. We invited all her friends and, and family. And of course, uh, whoever is receiving the award will have a you know, speech about uh, their contribution to the, 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 the rights of women. And then we'll have a tea afterwards. And would you believe for those 10 years, I made, personally made, 100 cucumber sandwiches at home and brought it to the University Women's Club, which is where we had our event, in honor, to honor Rosemary. <laughs> it was a wonderful way for me to remember the time that I had spent with her, you know? So cucumber sandwiches and tea is what we served. <laughs> I'm sure she's having a laugh as well. I asked Patsy if, over the years, she thinks that she has seen progress in Canada towards a more just and equitable society. Well, the fact that, that I have lived here for close to 60 years, you know, there has been quite a lot of changes that have happened. For example, when I was an undergraduate student in Windsor, the big issue was Medicare medical uh, services, free services. Saskatchewan had just uh, brought it in and the medical doctors had gone on a strike. Uh, and, and, but thank goodness, you know, that all um, went away so that uh, all Canadians are now eligible to get medical services. And then went on um, later on, um, you know, uh, uh, Trudeau, uh, Pierre Trudeau became uh, the prime minister and brought in a whole bunch of new um, 
policies. And, and one of the ones that I remember so well is the Canadian, it is a commission on the status of women. And that came up with many, many, many recommendations. Um, and then went on, uh, you know, during the mid seventies and all of those, you know, like uh, job creation at the local level involving a lot of young people because we were having lots of young people travel across Canada and uh, churches were opening up their basements so that there's the, the students, the young people can sleep overnight. And so there was such a, uh, and, and also it was also the time when Canadian young people, as well as the rest of us, were getting very involved in anti-Vietnam War. And, and uh, in fact, I actually had, uh, you know, several people stay with me because when they first come from the U.S., they have no place to stay. So um, we would offer many Canadians open their homes. And and, uh, and then later on, you know, I'm trying to think of the, the amazing amount of work that Canada has done overseas through the peacekeepers and also the, our role at the United Nations and, and um, all these wonderful stuff have happened. And of course we have the Charter of Rights and, and uh, the human rights uh, codes, not only national, but also in various provinces and all of those sort of stuff. But I feel I must uh, mention the fact that in spite of all these progressive stuff, uh, feminist foreign policy and, and on and on and on, we still have not done justice to the First Nations people of this country. And even though Canada has adopted uh, UNDRIP, which is, um, which is the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of the Indigenous People, we still have not adopted any of these. And I'm happy to say that the province of BC, where I reside, they have actually adopted it and they have a, a, a movement to... Uh, bring some of those uh, recommendations into, into action. And, you know, we have set up, uh, for example, the, there is a Crown Corporation called Canada Canadian Race Relations Foundation, which came about after Canada apologized to the Japanese people. So we have done some good stuff, but we have a long way to go. And that also includes the rights of women, because it seems to me that even though we have uh, all of this is included in the charter, the rights of women, including the charter. And yet violence against women has not changed. In fact, it has increased. And in this regard, I want to mention two commissions. One is, is the missing and murdered women. And they have made 15 recommendations. There are 15 themes. Canada has a um, Canadian prime minister uh, said that he's going to set up a action committee to implement those recommendations. We haven't seen it. You know, two years later, we are still waiting. Then of course the report on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And that too is, is uh, another, uh, another uh, significant event that happened in Canada. And I was fortunate, truly, truly fortunate to have had an invitation by the commissioners to make an honorary witness to the Commission, Truth and Reconciliation Commission, that I was able to speak about the strength of the indigenous women that I had known personally and how important it is to recognize that. And I was so happy that um, they decided to include my short statement in the report. 
And the why I'm getting emotional thinking about it or talking about it is because I was the only social worker in all of Canada who was invited to speak as an honorary witness. This was a real honor for me because my profession doesn't have the, the best of, of uh, reputation when it comes to First Nations and the First Nations children. And so I felt as an immigrant, having come here and learned about what has gone on in this country and, and how even today we're not recognizing the rights of the indigenous people, it really made me feel that, that I'm really treated special. And so I just wanted to make a comment about that in spite of all the wonderful stuff Canada is proud to have accomplished. We are still long way from being fair and just to the, the indigenous people of this country. Thank you. last question I had for Patsy was just how she maintains her energy. Despite being formally retired, Patsy continues to be active in several volunteer organizations, including Crossroads International, the Women's League for Peace and Freedom, and United Nations Vancouver. Well, I think one has to have a belief that the purpose in life, you know, is to uh, serve others, serve community, and uh, make changes that will make life better for more and more people. And that's why I think my own personal ideology is, is very much, it, very much in, in, in um, connection with my professional work, social work. And so even though I'm no longer doing a paid employment, I still am in a position to continue to do this because it's part of my belief system that you are here in order to serve others and and the, the meaning it it gives meaning to life when you are working to see improvements in your community and so the next generation and the year the generation after is going to benefit by the kind of initiatives that you started or you are being part of that you are promoting is a podcast brought to you with the support of Green College at the University of British Columbia. Music composed and arranged by Judith Valerie Engel and Gabriel Lanstead. Audio editing by Olivia Wheeler. Thank you for listening. We hope you can join us again.